0: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is good to be with you today. And thank you to our music team. Um, That's an impossible task to try to lead in song when our hearts are heavy. But they have served us well. And it's good to speak these truths to one another. That the love of our Savior is deep. And it is all we need. And we do trust in it this morning. And that is the theme, not only of our song, but of our text this morning. I'd like us to memorize our passage. It goes like this. Love never fails. That's our text this morning. And I hope that we will find in it encouragement for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and to prepare our hearts for our time in our text. I would actually like to turn to the book of First John, First John chapter 4. And if you would be kind enough one more time to be willing to stand to honor the reading of God's Word as you find your way there, if you're able, and if that's a hardship, please don't feel bad to remain seated. But as you're able to stand for the the reading of God's word will be reading in 1st John chapter 4 beginning in verse 7. 1st John chapter 4 beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. And by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you, the one who is love, not merely as an attribute that you have, but you define it by your existence. And you have demonstrated it to us in Christ Jesus. And we trust that love. We trust it with our very souls. And we ask today that you would give us grace and strengthen us so that we may not only rest in your love, even on a difficult week like this, but that we might show that love to others to be a conduit of it by which you are able through us to continue to minister your love to others. You've said in your word that love is the perfect bond of peace and may you wrap our church around with unbreakable bands. For your glory and for your name's sake, and that the world may know that we have been loved by a great God like you. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I really appreciated this passage. I feel like John's letter here does a great job of laying out the principle of love, where it comes from, why we are to love the gospel behind it. And in many ways, it's a perfect complement to 1 Corinthians 13, which is this practical playbook of what does this kind of loving of our brother look like when we actually live it out day in and day out. Love that is demonstrated through patience and through kindness, contentment, humility of word and of mind, courtesy, selflessness, temperance, Forgiveness, righteousness, and as we saw last week, the the Panta party, the all-bearing, all-believing, all-hoping, and all-enduring character of love. In short, as our text summarizes this morning in 1 Corinthians 13:8, love never fails. Love never fails. That word rendered fails in the New American Standard. Some of your translations may say love never ends or if you have some old Bibles, love never faileth or falleth away. It's a word used throughout the New Testament to to describe seeds falling into the ground and dying of people falling down on their faces in worship. It's a word used to describe things collapsing in destruction during judgment. And so when it says love never fails, it doesn't mean love never fails in the sense of like it gets the wrong answers on a test and gets a failing grade. It's a word that means love never fails in the sense of it does not collapse under pressure. Many of us have probably had a school project at some point or another where we built a bridge out of matchsticks or toothpicks or popsicle sticks. And then when we finished our creation, we began to put weight On top, and you keep adding weight until the structure is crushed and gives way. And what Paul is saying here is that the bridge of love never collapses, no matter how much weight you place upon it. I don't want to take this simple truth for granted especially on a week like this when we've grieved as a church, I want to make sure we really understand together and are comforted with what unfailing love really is. Why can Paul say something like this? Doesn't he know that love seems to fail all the time? Doesn't he know how broken everything in this world really is? is Paul really going to throw Disney-level platitudes at us from the pages of Scripture? Maybe we just need to soften this phrase. Maybe it should have said, love shouldn't fail. That that's the ideal, that's the goal, but it's just too bad that it does. And we know better than that. Inspired Scripture does not contain typos. The Holy Spirit made no mistakes when he inspired these words, love never fails, even in a world full of failure. And to understand how true this is, buckle up. My mind has and heart have been all over the place this week, and my message is to And so we're going to journey together across time and space, from earth to heaven and back. And when we're done, I do hope that this at least will be clear, the importance of the truth that love never fails for us, for the Corinthians, for all of time. So where do we begin? Well, as with most good stories, we must begin with a big problem that needs solving. And that problem is that we are unloving people living in an unloving world. I want to make sure that in our understanding of theology, as we understand God and His Word, two things are closely linked together. There is a close theological connection between righteousness and love. Or another way of putting it is this, sin and sin's consequences is one way of measuring lovelessness and its consequences. Paul taught us this principle in the book of Romans, which is a book he wrote very close to the time he wrote 1 Corinthians. And in Romans 13, 8, we read this, "Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, the entire law of God is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. This same point was made by our Savior, who also expanded to include our relationship with God when he was asked in Matthew 22:36, Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend the whole law and the prophets. When we consider the law of God, the commands of God, his instructions for life, when we consider them in their totality, we are studying love. In other words, then when we look around us at the world and we see the brokenness and we see the pain and we see the suffering, we see sin and its effects, we are observing the results of a failure to love. When Adam and Eve failed to obey God in the Garden of Eden, that disobedience was a manifestation of the prior sin, of having failed to love God as they ought to with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's why the serpent begins by questioning the words and the character of God. If they had loved God, they would have kept His commandments. As John wrote in 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Why aren't they burdensome? There's so many of them. They're not burdensome because they're all about love. Because when we live them out, we experience and we show and we express and we receive love. And that is a blessing. When the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23, it's another way of saying that we have all failed, every last one of us, to love God and to love others as we should. We are by nature in our fallenness unloving people and we live in an unloving world. John reminds us that our lack of love demonstrates an allegiance with the first being who ever failed to love God. In 1 John 3.11, John writes, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. When we fail to love We align ourselves with the evil one who, as John then goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 19, is the one in whom the whole world lies in his power. This world is being run in this fallen age by the one who does not love God. All of his schemes, all of his stratagems are an expression of his hatred and when we as unloving people align ourselves with him in his unloving strategies, we see just how cursed and broken this world really is. We are unloving people who live in a world under the, un- under the control of the unloving one. And Paul describes this reality vividly in Romans chapter 8. And this is a place, if you want to put your finger and kind of keep it there, we're going to be in Romans 8 a good bit this morning. I love this chapter. It's such a mountain peak in Scripture. And it's a place where Paul is wrestling with some of his deepest, most emotionally felt struggles as a believer. In chapter seven, he's wrestling with the fact that as a believer, as one who has been saved by grace, he still sees within him the pull of death. He still does what he does not want to do and doesn't do what he knows he ought to do. He sees that there is a competing passion in him at war with his love for God. And at the end of chapter seven, he says, oh, wretched man that I am. Close beside that struggle in the heart of Paul was his struggle over his nation that he was a part of, the people of Israel. And in chapters 9 and 10, he's trying to work out how is it possible that the people of God, to whom were made the promises of God, how could they have missed the Messiah of God and put him to death? And in chapter 8, nestled between those two great struggles, Paul lays out the theology of, what he knows is true, that will guide his resolution to all of those issues. And it's not a rose-colored glasses chapter. In fact, Paul zooms out even bigger than his own problems, let alone minimizing them. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, he says this, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul says what we all feel, that this world is broken. It's not just a problem here or there, but the created realm is struggling And that general groaning of all creation is also experienced by each of us as he goes on in the next verse to say, and not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. And then this is amazing. He goes even deeper in verse 26 when he says in the same way, the spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Paul is not turning a blind eye to just how broken the world is. He recognizes creation is falling and it groans that we are fallen and we groan and even God's Holy Spirit within us has to intercede on our behalf to express to the Father the groanings of our soul that language itself cannot express. And we've seen that this week. That there are times when groanings are indeed too deep for words. As Paul discovered, even those who are in Christ wrestle with our flesh and its broken love. We live in a world where, yes, there are beautiful sunsets and there are tender friendships that we can see that sometimes remind us how it should be. But in that same place, in that same world, we see poison and tornadoes. As we saw this week in our nation, pride and suffering, moments of laughter and joy punctuate what is a constant background of groaning as we all feel the inescapable weight of the curse on us. And though we may be distracted for a season and our culture specializes in distractions, we still feel it in our bones. Here is where we need to pay close attention. When we realize this, we are not We are not living in a world where love has failed. We are people and we are living in a world of people who have failed to love. Which is why it is so endlessly shocking and eternally marvelous that God would choose to love unloving people Living in such an unloving world. You probably already have the second point in your outline filled in. We are unloving people living in an unloving world. But God so loved that unloving world that he sent his son. You read this morning the Bible's declaration that God is love. And when the Bible says that, it is no exaggeration. His unfailing love, his covenantal love, is an ancient theme. In fact, David in Psalm 25, 6 describes God's loving kindnesses that have been from of old. This is who he has always been. And if you want to see the loving kindness of God celebrated and demonstrated, you can look for perhaps most clearly in the Old Testament to the exodus. Where the loving kindness of God is praised on almost every page. How he shows his loving kindness. How he keeps his loving kindness. How he abounds in his loving kindness through his great works of power and deliverance. Psalm 136, written about the exodus in fact, declares that the loving kindness of God is everlasting no less than 26 times. It's the only repetitive praise chorus you'll find in your Bibles. In other words, when God says he loves something, his love never fails. But even looking at the exodus with God's amazing deliverance of His people, bringing them out of the bondage of slavery, bringing them through the Red Sea, bringing low the nation of Egypt in judgment, bringing them into the wilderness where He could give them His law and His covenant and His presence, bringing them through 40 years of wandering in that wilderness, helping them cross into the promised land, giving them victory over the mighty nations that filled that place so that they could finally enter a land of peace and rest and prosperity all of that is only a shadow and a type, a picture pointing ahead to the real demonstration of the loving kindness of God which He had prepared before the beginning of the world. And so if we wish to know what real, unfailing love looks like, we must fast forward to the cross. As Paul wrote in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is of curiosity to me that the Bible takes time to define a number of terms. Right? There are places where you'll read sin is lawlessness or faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There are these different places in Scripture that define these key terms for us, but you won't find a definition of love. Instead, Scripture is contented to demonstrate it for us and to constantly point us to the reality of that demonstration and say, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. And that demonstration, the reality of love, is the sacrifice of Jesus for unworthy and unloving sinners. And this is the great truth that brings hope into a world of groaning. It is the solution to the lovelessness of the world. I want you to turn back once again to Romans 8, and we're going to walk through this chapter together, and I want you to see how Paul drives this truth home. Immediately after going through the groaning of creation, the groaning of our hearts, the groaning of the very spirit of God within us, Paul can write these words in Romans 8:28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called According to his purpose. That's an amazing promise. It's a promise that's been clung to as a lifeline this week. That God can cause everything to work together for good. But maybe you were reading it and you're saying, This is a trap. This is a bait and switch. You missed the small print. Of course, God will cause all things to work out together for good for those who love him. Of course, if we loved God every day the way we should, he'd be nice to us. He would bless us. He'd bring us success. But here's the problem. That's not me. I don't love God every day. I don't follow him as I should every day. This verse is just taunting us. But I want you to notice how the verse ends. This verse does not put the goodness of God to us contingent upon us maintaining our love for him, but on him accomplishing the calling which is according to his purpose. And so as the believer, as we find our love for God growing within us, and even when we find it faltering, we know that there is a God who has laid hold of us with a grip that cannot let go even when our grasp is fainting. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been laid hold of with an unfailing Love. And just to make sure we don't miss it, Paul goes on, continue with me in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is what the unfailing love of an omnipotent God looks like. Before time begins, He chooses you. And then in time, He calls you to Himself, and He makes it so that He can call a guilty sinner not guilty and justify you. And He will keep you, and He will bring you all the way to the point where you have been glorified with Him He shall work in us so that we are brought through this world of groaning, those of us who have found the Father through the Son until we are conformed into the image of the Son in glory. What can you say to a wonderful promise such as this? Paul tells us. Look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. And now you can see Paul taking this glorious truth and beginning to apply it to himself and to those around him as he says, what joy that our security rests in the unfailing love of God. And not in the frailty of our own fallen nature. Think back even over this past week. If you chronicled all the times that we have thought things and said words and interacted in our relationships and given into anger or given into laziness or given into lust or given into vice and enslaving sin, if we wrote down all of those ways in which we have betrayed the love of God, in which we have demonstrated a love for ourselves or for anything in this world besides Him, it would be not an insignificant document. And we have an accuser who would love to take all of that and roll it all up together and march into the throne room of God and say, look, Look what a wretched and unloving family you have. Surely you could not abide people such as this to be called by your name. And Paul says, who's going to actually pull that off if God is the one who is for us? What accusation will stand if he is the judge who has already rendered the not guilty verdict. Who will be able to bring a charge when it is Christ who intercedes on behalf of those for whom he died? And that is why Paul can go on in verse 35 to declare this, who will separate us from the love of Christ Christ? How about tribulation? We've seen some of that this week. How about distress? We've seen some of that this week. How about persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Maybe you haven't seen that this week, but around this world, God's children have seen all of those. Just as it is written, Paul says in verse 36, For your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul does not have a jaded view of the Christian life. He recognizes that pain and suffering and failure and sin and guilt and condemnation and the experience of all of those things are part of the Christian life. And yet, because we have been loved... with God's unfailing love. In verse 37, he can say this, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And this then is where he can park his anxious soul as he wrestles with his sin and the sin of his nation and the promises of God and how things aren't working out the way he thought they would. He can say, I am convinced that neither death, amen, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able, not alone succeed, even have the capacity to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is what unfailing love looks like when it is found in a being who does not fail to love. When Paul declares that love never fails, he is preaching a truth of cosmic significance. All our salvation, all our hopes depend on the constancy of God's love. For it is the motivation scripture gives for all that he does. If love can fail, if it is an emotion in God that can come and that can go, we've got a big problem. But God's love is not like our love and it is not like the fickle emotion that we often identify it with. God's love is connected to God's promises and because God can't lie, His love can't fail. Our rebellion against Him in the Garden of Eden could not quench His love. Our unfaithfulness to His law as revealed from Sinai couldn't deter Him. He loved us through centuries of idol worship and self-righteous religion. He loved us when he sent his son. He loved us when we rejected his son. He loved us when we crucified his son. And he even loved us when that love demanded that he crush his own son. We often call this gospel love, but the adjective is not necessary because it is the only kind of love. The gospel is the necessary consequence of love and the unending lengths to which love will go because love never fails. When the Father chose to love us, it was a foregone conclusion that he would crush his son because that is what unfailing love demanded. And all of that brings us then full circle back to the troubled believers in the city of Corinth and to our loves today because Paul is taking that whole reality with him when he's laying out love in 1 Corinthians 13 We are unloving people living in an unloving world, but God sent his son into this world because he loved us anyway. And that reality, as it is laid hold of us through the gospel of Jesus Christ, as his love begins to abide in us through his Holy Spirit, that love gives us the ability, therefore, to love broken people with the unbreakable love with which we have been loved. And that is what Paul is teaching the Corinthians how to do. Paul knows that where sin exists, love does not. Why are they quarreling and dividing over their favorite preachers? Because they lack love. Why are they suing and attacking one another in the courts? Because they don't love one another. Why do they destroy the conscience of another over something like meat sacrificed to idols? No love. Why are issues like head coverings and communion and spiritual gifts so full of competition and pride and schism? Because love is hard in a broken world. And that's why Paul is walking them and us through this incredibly simple, beautiful, and practical description of what living out the love of God is to look like. but we must come to grips with how hard this will be. There is no such thing as easy love in a broken world. Unfailing love cannot come without sacrifice and hardship so long as we remain unloving people in an unloving world. Think what a joy it will be to love one another in glory. But until then, love cannot be unfailingly patient unless our patience is being tried. And love cannot be unfailingly kind unless we are loving what is offensive. And love cannot prove its freedom from jealousy unless you're experiencing a lack of something you desire. Love cannot maintain humility unless it is putting to death the many-headed dragon of pride. Love must submit If it will act becomingly, it must turn away from its own desires in order to seek, not its own. It must look over the offenses of other, as irritating as they may be, so that it is not provoked. Love forgives again and again and again, rather than keeping an account of wrongs suffered. Love will face the scoffing and mockery of any and all rather than rejoice in anything but the truth in the face of ongoing discouragement love bears and believes and hopes all things and love does this day after day after day after day because love endures love never fails I want to make sure we don't miss something here. Notice that it doesn't say love never fails to work. As though somehow Paul is giving us here the formula or the technique to change our circumstances. He is not telling us if you will just love your spouse this way, in two weeks time, all of your marital conflicts will be resolved. He doesn't tell you if you will just parent this way, in in a month you will see all of your children acting like perfect little angels. He doesn't tell you if you will just love for a season, then the issues that you're facing with, with the health issues you're struggling with, with the loss that you've experienced, that the hurts in your life will just evaporate and go away, that your relationship with your boss and your coworkers, that's broken is going to get fixed, that your bank accounts are going to balance Paul is not giving us a get happy quick scheme. It doesn't work like that. What he is telling us is that this is the kind of love that will continue doing what it ought to do even if nothing else changes. Because if you love like God loves, they might crucify you too. We don't tweak what love looks like until the object of our love is happy and satisfied with us. That's not true love. Love does what is right. And we don't give up on love because it's not producing the changes or... or, changing the circumstances in the way that we feel like we need because that is not a realistic expectation. We love because we have been loved by a God who keeps loving us no matter what we do because He has chosen to do so and has committed His covenantal promises to us and we want to imitate that so that the world could see Him through us until He brings us home. And that brings us to our time around the Lord's table this morning. I would invite you to take and prepare your elements. In communion, we celebrate unfailing love. And we celebrate how it has played out and will play out across time. When we look at this cup, which represents the blood that Jesus shed and this wafer that represents his body broken for us, we remember how we were loved in his sacrifice for sin and at what a cost that love came. When we celebrate this together as his church today, we look around at one another and we realize he loves us still. And we are still his family, and he is still bringing us from every nation, tribe, and tongue to worship him. And we recall what that unity in him should look like. And as our Savior taught us, we declare his sacrifice over and over and over again, as often as we do it in anticipation of the fulfillment of all of his promises and the love that he will show us when he returns one day for us and brings us to be with him. This is a celebration of love, true love. And I want to invite you just to take a moment to thank God for his unfailing love for us, but also let us pause to ask God to search us to see if there would be anything in us that fails to demonstrate his love in our lives. Where have we been unloving this week? And may we be motivated and encouraged and strengthened to repent from that so that the love which we have received can be seen by others, especially in those difficult places in our lives, to his glory. So let's take a moment and then I will close us in prayer and we will partake together. Father, we thank you for your deep, deep, ancient love, and for how you have woven that love into time and space from the moment you said, let there be light, to Christ declaring it is finished from the cross, to that day when you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant in your presence. We thank you that there is nothing that can separate us from that love because else, Lord, we would find a way. Thank you that we can grieve this week, not as those who have no hope, but as, as those who suffer yet know that you will be faithful to your love. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to become ministers of that love one to another. I pray that our church would be a place where the world can see echoes and glimpses of the unfailing love that you have shown us. That our gospel testimony would be linked to the fruit of the gospel working itself out in our lives. And none of this as a work of the flesh or to our own credit, but all of this pointing back to the sacrifice of your son, whose death we now remember and declare until he returns. Amen. Let's take together. Thanks be to our loving God for his indescribable gift. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you please stand?